Welcome to Communion and Shalom. In this podcast, we are exploring how the biblical and historic Christian faith can engage sexuality, ethnicity, culture, and our local communities as we pursue the flourishing of God's kingdom. Our goal is to engage these topics charitably and with nuance. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Communion and Shalom. TJ and I are here and we are here with our dear friend, Daniel Quinnen. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Um, could you just give a little bit of introduction? There's much more to say about you than just that you're an old friend of ours. So who are you? Where are you from? Where are your people from? Uh, where do you find belonging now nowadays? Sure. So you can go. feel free to ask me follow-up questions as needed because talking about myself is not my strength. But <laughs> I... I I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, kind of split between Massachusetts and Virginia. Now, after getting a canon law degree, working out here in St. Paul, Minnesota, I've been here coming up on 10 years and Mm -hmm. don't see that changing anytime soon. So I guess I'm now Minnesotan. Otherwise, I mean, a whole bunch of friend groups spread out across, you know, the cities or even with college friends across the United States to some extent, mostly connected with a lot of people from Eden Invitation here in the Twin Cities and Revoice Side B friends to some extent uh, outside the cities. Otherwise, friends, family from high school, college. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it depends. You know, we're here especially to interview you, hear about the Catholic canon law tradition on questions of sexuality and sex, because this is, I mean... You're not only Catholic, but are a canon lawyer. But can you, like, how, have you always been Catholic? Has your family always been Catholic? Yeah, always been Catholic, born and raised. I think my parents, I mean, were also raised Catholic, but they were not as involved in their faith until they started doing some homeschooling with us as we were younger. So they learned, they like to say, I think that they learned a lot alongside us to some extent. Okay. Can you just explain a little bit of how did you get connected with canon law? What's your yeah experience with it? Sure. I mean, I would say it was a convergence of interests. So in college, a primary liberal arts degree, college degree at Thomas Aquinas College focused on philosophy and theology. I didn't want to teach. So pursuing those as a, as a degree seemed unclear what I would do with it. I had some... I think parents and grandparents pointing out that they thought law might be a good fit based on the way I liked to engage in arguments and things of that sort. And then putting those three together kind of converged on there is a legal option that's in the philosophy and theological tradition that I could go into. Mm-hmm. So so that was a pretty quick sell once I put those pieces together. Mm-hmm. Could you also talk about your connection to side B? Like, what was, how did you get there to that, to be connected? Yeah, to so it was a, there was a, a college friend who connected me with the Facebook group, which I think still exists, but I have not been as involved in. Um, there's the side B Facebook group. And I think it was even out of that group that the Revoice conference grew out of. 
Um, but I was connected with them and through them met some friends in the Twin Cities, ended up living with Chris Damien, who was involved in that Facebook group initially. Uh, so those kind of those kind of roots. Beyond that, it was then just kind of continuing to attended the you know attending the conferences, attending some of the retreats that were offered, and eventually connecting with Eden Invitation. After I guess they started to exist. Hmm. And that'll be it's fun because the episode that we'll release right before this episode will be with Anna and Shannon from Eden Invitation. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, we, we love what's happening um, in the Catholic world. Uh, sometimes the yeah, so Protestant much, and Catholic so communities don't talk a lot. So sometimes our language forms a little bit differently. Uh, so that's part of what we're wanting to learn is both to learn from you on canon law and how it can help us think through these questions around sexuality, sex, sexual attraction, but also just to learn more about more of how, how the Catholic communities are processing this. So TJ, do you want to kick us off with some initial basic questions in our inquiry? I w I w I'm happy to. Before that, though, I, I think we should talk. I just want to ask Daniel about um, sexuality because just to be, you want our um, listeners to be clear, kind of your positionality mm -hmm. in the conversation. So would you be willing to just talk about maybe how you sexually identify or how your sexuality has played out in your life? Yeah. So, I mean, assuming everyone's on a framework with the side A, side B discussion, I would identify as a side B gay Catholic. So committed to the church's teaching, effectively pursuing a single life of celibacy. What was that like? Was that a hard process? Did you have like coming out process when you're younger? Like, what was it like being a young gay Catholic boy? Oh, no, it was a pretty, yeah. it was a pretty seamless process in terms of recognizing that, you know, had these kind of attractions or desires, certainly the, the same sex attracted language was the first step and it wasn't until I saw some people identifying as gay and Catholic and figuring out what they meant that that clicked as obviously that makes sense. So that was not a difficult transition in terms of understanding that terminology. Mm -hmm. um, and then what was the other part of your question? Uh, I was also curious what it was like growing up as a young gay Catholic kid. I understand you mentioned terminology. But yeah. yeah, did you did you feel like the church accepted you as you were kind of thinking through these things? There wasn't a conversation until you got old. Like, it wasn't important to you until you got older, maybe, to think about sexuality. I think that's probably closer to the truth. I never had a serious struggle in terms of feeling like I wasn't accepted, mm -hmm. whether that's due to education or upbringing. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know if I'm answering the question, but there wasn't as much of a difficulty to unpack there in my experience. It, I think maybe because I gravitate toward the intellectual processing, I did some of the reading and stuff on my own and mm. was pretty quickly convinced that that, that I wasn't excluded. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't maybe getting that from other people. Sure. That's great. That's really great. And then did you, was college a good place for you to process sexuality topics? Yes. 
I don't think it. I don't think it was a big feature mm-hmm. as much in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was a very small Catholic college campus. I. I mean, I certainly was not the only person who wasn't in a dating relationship, so there wasn't wasn't any significant pressure in that sense. Sure. One fun fact about Daniel and I, after knowing each other for a while, we found out that we had created parallel <laughs> Facebook groups to yes. <laughs> to help foster Christian and Catholic roommates in the Twin Cities area making connections with each other. What inspired you initially in that? And how I'm just curious if you have any thoughts of just like long term household living community and like what that means for you. Maybe I'll start with the second part first. I mean, I think something similar to what I'm in now with a set of two or three or maybe four housemates seems like something I would anticipate aiming for in the future. I mean, obviously, if I be- if or when I become a homeowner, uh, that's a whole other question, but you know, that could change things depending on what size of house is involved, but I think I do think that small community of some sort is a good fit. And the, the Facebook group, it was, I mean, it was absolutely inspired by when I was living in Maryland or in Washington, D.C., going to school for the canon law degree. There was an identical Facebook group in the D.C. area. And it seemed like such a incredibly helpful resource that when I moved out here, I was sad they didn't have an existing one. And then I realized pretty quickly that I could copy paste and just throw people in it and see how it goes. And it, it's, I've heard certainly that people have gotten good out of it. So that's encouraging. Yeah. Yes. Similarly, uh, mine was, I, I think I actually had to revoice. Oh, no, not revoice. It was a different conference. I heard of a one in Denver, I think, and copy pasted. And yeah, it's been cool to see both those groups. And now they're kind of connected. It is awesome. Um, yeah, so this is kind of reiterate what David Frank said. The idea for this episode emerged in part because of this attempted to get greater connection between Protestant and Catholic reflection on some of these topics. But also that I think emerged in part from my own interest and reliance historically, I guess, in using kind of Catholic sources for thinking about some of these questions. Hmm. Thank you again for coming, Daniel. Kind of to start with the basic question, we've been mentioning canon law. So I'm going to ask you, the canon lawyer, what is <laughs> canon law and how does it impact the life of the church? So, I mean, the nutshell version is that it's canon law is how the Catholic church organizes and governs itself. It's a whole system of laws and legal principles used both in the, the Latin or Western and Eastern Catholic churches. And and to a similar extent, it's also in the Eastern Orthodox churches. I believe they have their own, and maybe not the same extent of a system, but I think they absolutely have a system of canon law. And it comes historically from the Greek, the Greek word for rule or norm, canons. And so mm. when the, the church promulgated rulings, they were published as canons. So you get those coming out of the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Trent, there's the whole, you know, books written on the history of how this evolved, but you get eventually have canons also being promulgated directly by popes. It's a fully, fully developed legal system, shares a lot of roots with the, I think, the common law English system. 
but it's, I mean, effectively the first and oldest continuously functioning legal system in the, in the Western world, so to speak. So it contains ecclesiastical laws governing church membership, administration of sacraments, rights of clerics and laity, procedures, penalties, finances, liturgy. It's a lot. <laughs> I'm curious, now that you say this, how does the canon law tradition work? Like you told us what it is, but how does it work? And what sources do you use? You mentioned, obviously, the canons from some of the previous councils, but are there other sources you use to develop this sort of legal system? Yes. So, well, so I should maybe clarify. I mean, you get canons from historical councils. I would, I think the vast, vast majority, if not entirety of those are no longer current or no longer in effect. So unless they're maybe a theological teaching, if it was a disciplinary teaching about how, how priests should present themselves or what they should wear or what, I think a lot of those are either reformulated and taken up or set aside in the current law, depending on what we're talking about. Hmm. So there's entire books written on the history of the tradition. I mean, the modern current system, at least for the Latin Catholic Church, is going to have, we have the Code of Canon Law that was promulgated in 1983 by Pope John Paul II. Uh, that replaced the previous 1917 Code of Canon Law. And prior to the 1917 Code, there was not even a unified code. It was disparate sources and it was you know, keeping track of everything was a huge part of the work involved. And to some extent, we're, we're drifting back to maybe a system like that where we have, I would say Pope Francis has issued a lot of laws individually that we're getting back to a more fragmented approach, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's not all in one book. Can you give an example of like what recent laws are? Sorry, maybe I should ask my question when you're done. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean... Recent laws would, I mean, I, I'm trying to think about the best way to answer that. The There's a lot of like individual canons or blocks of canons that have been updated, whether it's a small adjustment or a, a deeper rewrite. There's been, you know, I think like at least once every three to four months, a new update feels like it's dropping, which is a high pace compared to, I think, historically there's been slower developments but in aside from changing canons i think there's also like new procedures or new guidelines being given for prosecution of clerics with child sexual abuse crimes things mm. like that or developments in that regard i think have been dropping more frequently and aren't all in the the book code you might have to find them somewhere else okay thanks what do you do as a canon lawyer on like a daily or weekly basis like what is your that work like? I am instructing marriage nullity cases. So parties will submit a petition asking us to investigate whether or not their marriage is canonically or was canonically valid. And we have to go through a whole investigative process. I mean, because of the gravity of what it would mean to declare a sacrament invalid, we have to go through a process of interviewing them, interviewing witnesses, looking for documentary evidence and putting together. So my role is after a case is accepted and lands on my desk, I'm going through the decrees, interviews, evidence gathering, and kind of 
seeing the case along until a decision. And then I, and then each decision is a panel of three judges. I'm one of the three. So there's, I get a third of a vote with two other clerics usually. Oh, interesting. And does a diocese, how, how many um, can lawyers are usually in a diocese who work on some of these topics or these issues? It, it, I would say it varies pretty widely. You're going to have some dioceses that have one or two, or if they're lucky, three. Some places like us are going to have quite a few more. That's kind of all over the place, depending on the size of the diocese. And yeah. So you talk about, you know, like the Pope is issuing out canon laws. I know that, so I come from the Presbyterian church right now, and uh, we have like the Constitution Book of Church Order for the entire denomination, uh, which could be global. Uh, but then each presbytery local region can also create its own like, well, it says that we have to do this regularly, but then we can define more specifically what regularly means for XYZ. Are, is there re, like regionalization things that happen? Because it, it's it can just be like that, right? Like procedures. Yeah, absolutely. So I I kind of skipped over that. I mean, in addition to we call it like the universal code of canon law, the things that apply to all of the churches around the world. You can also have laws that are issued by individual bishops for their territory, and there's some rules governing that. Like they can't necessarily do anything they want. They can't contradict universal laws unless they get like special approval from Rome to make an exception. But okay. they they can create within boundaries additional rules and laws for their territory hmm. in the same way. My last question on canon law, you said that it means it comes from the word like rule. Is it similar? You know, I'm more familiar with that from like monastic traditions where the where there is the rule of Saint Benedict. Are they, is, do they ever, do the rules of monastic communities ever connect to canon law? My suspicion is yes, but I am not going to be able to say for sure right now. so much, Daniel, for providing us a brief intro into canon law. Now we wanted to move into questions specifically around same-sex sex and same-sex sexual attraction or orientation. So, Daniel, we know that obviously these questions around same-sex sex and same-sex sexual attraction orientation have been divisive for many parts of the church in the world, perhaps especially in the area we call the West. How do you think, as a a gay side B celibate canon lawyer. Like, how do you think we should be approaching these questions about same-sex sex and same-sex attraction, orientation, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. from your experience as a canon lawyer and being part of the church for a long time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, and there's several components there. I think when it comes to actual sexual activity, it's easier to draw bright lines, at least if you're sticking to Catholic church teaching. When it comes to questions of attraction or orientation, things get a lot more complicated because I think we have to be careful about how we're defining those words or those terms and how they're being used. I, I think different people will very quickly use them in different ways that aren't always compatible. So for instance, if someone says same-sex attraction, 
they might be meaning specifically sexual attraction, whereas another person using that term might be using it in a broader way to refer to romantic attraction or to some combination of different attractions. And so depending on what, how you're defining the term, or same with orientation, that has a huge impact on how we parse these things out. So I think ultimately we have to be cautious about how we're using those terms. I think there's a, I think a good principle is, you know, to err on the side of charity and, and assume that the person you're speaking with intends, intends these terms in a way that are compatible with the Catholic faith, if they're a Catholic speaking, but you might need to ask to clarify. You know, there, there's unfortunately not like, consensus, I think, in any church on these things. But I have noticed that there does seem to often be some more commonality among Catholics. What are some of the, you know, on these questions around same-sex attraction and orientation, what are some of the strengths from the Catholic tradition? What wells are y'all drawing, drawing from? I mean, so I think for things like attraction and orientation there's not nearly as much of a well to draw from or maybe that applies specifically to orientation i think attraction you can find a lot of authors speaking about theological dimensions of attraction when it comes to the the wells that are being drawn from for teachings on sexual activity those are going to go back to I mean, the whole development of philosophy in the Catholic Church with, I guess, primarily you're going to have the Aristotelian tradition intersecting with Aquinas and how he takes that up and brings it in and how it's in dialogue with other philosophical traditions. So, so then the strengths, I think, coming out of that philosophical tradition are the, my, in my view, the rigorous philosophical and logical consistency. So, as I understand it, and I think what eventually helped convince me that it made sense was seeing the Catholic teaching on sexual ethics as a very seamless garment in a way with a internal logic that accounts for all of the strange little details and mm. all of the traditional sexual prohibitions in a, in a pretty logical and airtight manner once you get the starting principles locked down. And that's obviously easier said than done. Maybe an example here is if you're analyzing sexual activity from a, a philosophical or traditional natural law perspective, it makes a huge difference if the procreative element is something that is morally essential or radically optional. It was clear to me that if the procreative element is, is radically optional and can be set aside, then the objections to things like contraception and homosexual sex collapse very quickly. So without that theological or philosophical link or that moral claim, you have an entire realm of non-procreative sexual activity that seems logically permissible, at least if you're not going to make a special appeal to scripture. And even that goes down a whole rabbit hole of interpretations and traditions and reinterpretations or developments that can make that disputed question. Hmm. And so I think that logical coherence, as I understand it, is the strength in my mind. And so the traditionally forbidden sexual activities kind of stand or fall together. It's all or nothing. You have to kind of pick a lane and 
go all in on whether those things stand or fall together. Yeah, Judge Daniel, would you tell us what natural law is in the Catholic tradition? I'm going to speak off the top of my head, and it's the kind of thing I would pull out Aquinas and go double check. <laughs> but it boils down to natural law being understood as the rule of reason. And, and what that means is the way Aquinas, I think, frames it is that what we do is we, we look at, you know, we look out at the world, we look at nature, we look at our nature and the nature of things, and we, using our reason, reflect on what is, what is conducive to the flourishing of that nature, of what, it's, what it is or what it's intended to be. But, but it boils down to what is, what is reasonable or unreasonable according to the nature of the thing. In principle, even if it's difficult to get agreement on, it's something that in theory does not require, scripture does not require special divine revelation, is something that any philosopher could, in theory, work their way toward. Maybe a good example here is actually Aquinas would certainly say, and I would argue, the, like the existence of God. You have, you have a whole set of arguments about maybe if it, even if you don't think it's like the Judeo-Christian God, you have arguments about why there has to be some kind of being that is eternal because things can't arise from nothing. If you you can't trace it back, you could have the universe itself in theory maybe being eternal if it was never created, but you have to have something some kind of eternal being because something can't come from nothing. That kind of argument or principle is a natural law or a, yeah, a, a philosophy of nature argument for the necessity of a, an eternal being. And then there's all sorts of arguments related to that and that flow from that with, do you have God who is the author of nature? You have some obligation to, to recognize and operate in accord with nature yeah, uh, another example might be like I don't have super in depth moral ethics related to this, but just like the nature of what what is food for would be a natural law question. Yes. You don't yeah. probably go to the scriptures. You might find things that you know like God has given this thing for you know that does help remind us of yeah. how God wants to yeah. give this as good gifts, etc. But you can also just look at food and and everybody without ever reading the scriptures knows food is for eating. And so there's a similar type of reflection on like, let's look at sex and just what it is, which I find interesting. There's a certain, you know, like a lot of our, I think, modern conversations where purity culture has made sex a taboo where people are afraid to talk about it. Mm. There's a certain rawness to natural law that says no like let's let's look at it <laughs> and let's actually talk about what sex is for what's going on here how so like i think modern cover like well actually like sex is very pleasurable and like so consent and pleasure become the primary paradigms of or primary goals kind of components of good sexual experiences do those play do those get incorporated into the Catholic like natural law vision for sexual activity alongside procreation? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly correct. It it's a it's a both and 
sort of approach where those things are the teaching is that those things have to be held together and can't be radically separated. Hmm. And can you talk about ways that just maybe more personally, in what ways have you seen like a internal coherence that has helped you kind of that has guided your side B conviction and for you to trust the views of the Catholic church? Have you found competing logics? I think yes and no. I mean, from within a Christian framework, I don't think I've found any competing logics, but I do think it, I think one thing that stands out to me is that, I mean, if you, if you don't have scripture or a Christian or Catholic tradition to adhere to, it does make a lot of sense to me that you can have a, a very strong or coherent, radically permissive kind of sexual philosophy. I, I think, I do think that still runs into natural law argument problems when it comes to the purpose of procreation and, and sexual activity. But if, if you, if you see that as something optional, I don't think that's a crazy idea. If you see that as something optional, then that can logically take you down a very rigorously permissive attitude toward things like, I mean, homosexuality, sex work being, you know, a good contraception. Again, all, there's a whole, anything that people consent to becomes in principle good or permissible or not something that others can really have an opinion on because they're not harming anyone or, or something along those lines. I think that can be a very compelling and coherent approach. I, and the, the problem is it runs into, I mean, for Christians, I think it runs into serious scriptural problems, but then it also, I would still maintain runs into problems with, with the philosophical consistency with, with regarding what the, you know, what, what seems to be the natural purpose of sexual activity and why sex exists. Hmm. So could you just actually just keep rolling down that train? <laughs> what, like, in this, as we're thinking about these things, what is sex for? Yeah, I mean, I think the the simple, you know, the brute natural answer is going to be that it's for reproduction. Like if, if why else would it exist if not for reproduction? That's clearly what the organs are designed or intended for, even what they evolved for. So I think we're, this is going down a question of analyzing the nature of the body or the nature of the organ and what it, what it, what it's, so to speak, its purpose is, whether, whether you think that purpose is built into the, the nature of it here and now, or, or the, the reason it was given or why it evolved, but what its purpose is. And so I think the link on a biological level between sex and reproduction is clear to me. And then you get all of the, I mean, the questions about pleasure and, and the, the, the way it can draw people together. That's, I mean, that's also linked to reproduction. Like that's, that's generally going to encourage more reproduction. It's going to encourage people to stay together, to raise the children. I think those are the arguments about what its natural purpose is. Hmm. Can you talk more about how those things relate then? For example, the 
maybe core purpose of reproduction and then pleasure and also maybe this bonding experience? Or how, how must they relate if reproduction is at the core of something? I mean, so this is going more in the direction of, we haven't used this word yet, but the, the, the teleological analysis, which, which is, has to do with, with purposes. It's maybe just a fancier way of talking about natural law. But you look at what the core purpose of something is, whether it's given by nature or given by God, given by evolution, all of that is still going to be, you know, God is the ultimate author of nature, no matter how it's created. So we, if we accept the premise that there's some purpose given by nature one way or another, then there's an ethical claim that follows about if nature has a purpose for sex, which is going to be also God's purpose for sex because he created nature, then we have, we have an obligation to respect that and to operate mm. in, a, in harmony with it. Uh, even if we're adding our own purposes to it, maybe maybe seeking pleasure that still has to be done in in harmony with nature's purpose and not radically or deliberately apart from it hmm. and so all of the yeah all of the traditional sexual prohibitions are kind of tied to that philosophical premise if there's a natural purpose to the sexual act we can't just ethically disregard it hmm. i feel like that yeah there's the part about being a creature respecting the way that we have been created that god's design it's a huge part of the natural law and i think it's like how much freedom is there to creatively play with you know what what has been created and when does that creative use of our ourselves our bodies food turn into abuse of these of these goods of abuse of the design. Yeah. It also occurs to me, I, I kind of didn't complete this thought earlier or I started down a track and didn't finish it, but you know, following up on if, if you think the existence of God is something that is accessible without revelation by natural reason, so to speak, you have a similar thing happening where because there's some kind of creator you have an obligation to give worship or to honor the creator mm -hmm. and different traditions will reach toward that in different ways. And maybe Christians think because of revelation, there's a special way we have, we're instructed to do that, but it's, it's still pointing back along a similar path of, of we have a, a natural obligation to, to, to do this because either because we've been created or because we've been given this thing and we have an obligation to respect what we've been given. Mm -hmm. This makes me think that some modern people are like particularly like, like, I don't know what to say, but like they've been particularly raised in a way against some of these um, ways of thinking of God, ways of thinking mm -hmm. of creation. Like, like they don't, they don't have a connection to transcendence. So they don't see like God's imminence being throughout the world or something. Mm -hmm. So, it seems like only the most virtuous of pagans would recognize natural law in the way you're talking about. Maybe that's not true everywhere, yeah. but that's kind of what I feel when you talk about it that way. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a correct instinct. I mean, I think even, I guess what, I'm, what, what comes to mind is that I think even Aquinas says that something like the existence of God might not be easily accessible. It might be hard to arrive at, which is why there's a lot of value in 
teaching things to teaching people how to, you know, without having to go through all the hard work, they can be, you know, given the correct conclusions, but they should still also be teaching them, you know, how to verify or how to seek out and learn those arguments at the mm-hmm. same time. I, I, it makes me think of my indigenous neighbors and I feel, I think I've seen a t-shirt that says honor the creator and mm, yeah. it just is like, Oh, like, you know, they, <laughs> they recognize <laughs> there's a creator and that we should honor, you know, honor our creator. That's it's Genesis one, you know? <laughs> and there's a lot of more recent conversations of trying to regain a theology of creation. And I feel like what you're discussing here of uh, not just this kind of, you know, the starting point is yeah, creation's good. But then it's like, well, what's good about it? What is it good for? What is it designed for? And and investigating its goodness this and how to honor that. Among Protestants, because of the Protestants of the last like several years in the West, they've been really biblically focused. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a working through to maybe a more holistic view. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were saying that if procreation is this central end for sex, then the part of the connected reasons of pleasure has to do with bonding. I assume you have marriage in mind with when you're talking about like this solidarity of that bonding. Yeah, I, I maybe not exclusively, but yeah, that was definitely adjacent. I think the the bonding element is one of those things that leads you toward a concept of marriage where where because of the bond there should be a more permanence to it and that gets messy in terms of the natural law argument but i think i mean in terms of what catholic teaching is how how it's looking at marriage marriage is ordered toward whether by nature and or by god specifically toward two purposes first being procreation and upbringing of children and second being the well-being of the spouses so that that kind of partnership that's conducive to earthly happiness and to ultimately reaching heaven those two things are intended to be held simultaneously and neither should be kind of sacrificed for the benefit of the other so but but yeah that element of if sex is ordered toward procreation, that also gives rise to this idea that it's a, at least a major philosophical piece of the argument for why sex is is to be reserved within marriage. Because when there's a child conceived, we would argue that both parents have natural obligations, obligations and justice toward mm-hmm. their child, and the child has a natural right to be raised and loved by their parents. Maybe they provide for those things in other ways if, if they can't. Maybe you know adoption is an option for someone who can't fulfill their natural obligations personally. That gets complicated with you know individual circumstances. But in terms of if the sexual act is ordered toward that end, and you're going to have obligations for raising this child, you get quickly toward this idea of it needs to be ethically done within a committed relationship within a marriage that is going to provide that foundation for those obligations. Hmm. I, and I find that you, I, we see that in our law courts, you know, in the U S law courts of just those, those ab- obligations that spouses have to each other and that, 
I'm thinking about in situations where, you know, one of the parents no longer lives in the home, they still have to pay child support. And that's often ordered by the court. And I don't know, I, I feel like sometimes we skip over the, like the philosophical, like what's philosophically grounding that mm -hmm. th those U.S. laws. And it seems to be this deep understanding that marriage is ordered towards procreation, upbringing of children, and the well-being of spouses. And it's it's trying to hold all these things together. I don't know enough about the exact history of you know, United States law on marriage to say how accurate that is. I suspect it's largely true, if only because of the history of marriage is pretty consistent up until, you know, the last 60, 70, 80 years, give or take. I mean, I think, I think we're still grappling with the logical consequences of endorsing as a society, contraception and what that does to the the legal obligations between spouses. Yeah, I just learned recently that it wasn't until about 1960 that the Protestant churches changed their view on this. And so most Protestants were like, well, it's a Catholic thing that they don't like contraception, uh, those strange Catholics. And when it really it's now been, I guess that's seven, no, 60 years. Wait, can I do math? Yeah. 63, I guess, to be more precise, if it was exactly 1960, where Protestants made that shift. And so sometime in the you know 1900s, most Christians were all being, were, were anti-contraception. Can you, yeah, I guess just elaborate on like, why does that still feel like it's such a big deal when people are like, eh, it's just a, a helpful tool? Why does the Catholic Church continue to maintain such a sh strong requirement against contraception? I think a lot of that goes back to the, the rigorous consistency of the teaching and I mean, not only not only philosophically consistent, but like historical continuity of there would be, I think, major theological crises if something that well settled was then overturned. It, it becomes a question of if that can be overturned, what can't be on some level? But but I think you know preventing that is also just the the rigor of the philosophical arguments and how they're also forced to grapple with scripture. And so I think maybe scripture in a way is functioning as a, 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 a doorstop that prevents things from changing too much too quickly. Can you elaborate on like, so if the Catholic church tomorrow came out with a release that's like contraception is permissible. There's both of just, you're kind of saying this like this feels very fundamental what other fundamentals are can be just flippantly overturned but what well, are the actual like i don't know moral consequences that are, are would be tied up in that well i mean yeah so that i mean the overwhelming thing to my canon law mind is that that would have been such a it would be such a theological and canonical crisis and because we have I mean, canonically and theologically, there's like 
teachings have different grades of certitude. So, so that would be striking at something so deep. But then practically, you would also have the fact that if contraception is permissible and procreation is optional, then it would be pretty obviously possible to pursue sexual activity just for pleasure because it's not because it's fully severed from procreation it can be done outside of marriage there's no risk of injustice toward a child being conceived there's yeah it just becomes a much more fuzzy world of sexual ethics and things get much more personal and arbitrary if once that mm. if that's allowed mm-hmm. we should talk about this way more someday because it's it's actually a big issue in the conversation around sexual ethics but i think we should i kind of want to move on so daniel when sometimes when i hear talk of the catholic teaching around sex especially same sex sex this is often on social media like the reddit and those sort of people they always deal up they always bring up critiques of people like postmenopausal women who might marry or infertile or sterile men or women who might be allowed to marry both of those people are cannot like re- reproduce in a nor- in a normal sort of situation the question comes why can they marry but queer people cannot yeah so the the distinction here in in the catholic approach is going to be looking at I mean, it starts with again, what is the what is sexual action ordered toward, and and so the precise term we'll end up using in in the theological canonical tradition is we talk about acts, sexual acts that are per se apt for the generation of children. So they're inherently conducive toward this purpose, and so if there's a requirement that they be apt for procreation. That means that you can't deliberately sever them from that natural purpose. But if procreation fails to result for an involuntary reason, because you know the person's sterile, as long as the act, the external physical act, is ordered toward that purpose or that toward that end, then it's not considered problematic. I mean, yeah, there can be defects in in nature that happen involuntarily. But as long as it's not being deliberately frustrated, the sexual act is still ordered toward that purpose and being done in a manner that is conducive to that purpose. And But in terms of also sterility specifically, I guess yeah, I do have, there's the one canon that I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just kind of boil it down into the key part that I think is relevant. But we have, we have canon 1084, which says that impotence to have sexual intercourse by its very nature invalidates marriage. And that's contrasted with sterility, which neither forbids nor invalidates a marriage. So there's a, I mean, a clear citation for this distinction between impotence and sterility. So sterility is not an obstacle to marriage, but impotence, which would mean not even able to have sexual intercourse at all, can't even engage in those acts that are apt for generation absolutely stops a, a marriage from being canonically valid. Uh, that could be a unique for example. A yeah, I mean, maybe maybe think like a war vet who has had significant portion of their lower body mm-hmm. just destroyed, but mm-hmm. they're still alive. The okay. fact that they're still seeking a male-female marriage is not going to be sufficient uh, canonically. Mm. Mm. 
Hmm. That really rubs against our partner-oriented culture. <laughs> Some have also wondered, does, I mean, Christianity has a lot of examples of God blessing um, people, couples with children beyond their age. We would typically consider them sterile in the Bible, right? Is that, I assume that's part of the, the background logic behind sterility being allowed because in principle, God could bless these people with a child. Yeah, could, could heal whatever yeah. defect. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Uh-huh. In any case, you end up with, again, those two core purposes of, of marriage or of sexual activity. And if you take either one away, neither taking either one away results in something that the Catholic church doesn't consider marriage. So Mm -hmm. if it's, if it's a sexual partnership, that's radically, radically incapable of even aiming at procreation, or if it's even a sexual partnership that's exclusively dedicated to procreation to such an extent that it's like an abusive relationship, neither of those is going to meet the Catholic understanding of marriage. And, and then, you know, on some level, that's exactly what my job, I guess, is, is investigating <laughs> if one of those things or if something else is being cut out in a way that, that renders the resulting thing to not be a marriage. And to be clear, this, this is, well, in, in our current situation, where a lot of where church and state has been separated around the world, this, is, this teaching is for marriages in the church, but doesn't necessarily touch marriages that the state conducts. Okay, maybe I shouldn't get into this, actually, because marriage, like marriage regimes around the world are kind of complicated. But Yeah, well, I think, I think it's worth maybe just saying that, I mean, the state may or may not define marriage with other conditions, but as far as the Catholic view of marriage is concerned... I mean, the state, what we would say is something like the state can get its definition correct or it can get it wrong. Mm-hmm. So if the state defines it in such a way that we're radically disagreeing with what it is, then then we're encountering like a deep equivocation. People are using the same word in two radically different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sure. You mentioned, you know, the example of a war vet on one end. Did you give an example of on the other end of where maybe procreation is fully in view, but the other purposes of marriage are not? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't give an example, but I mean, it would be something like your stereotypical abusive husband or cult who's treating their women as like baby making factories and nothing more mm-hmm. like that is going to cut so deeply against the nature of marriage as a partnership that if that lands on my desk, it's almost certainly going to be invalid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's also another, I don't, know, I don't think this is bad personally, but there are marriages which are not, that don't revolve around romance, a word I hate, but instead they're just, they have, they work, they have children and their life partners somehow together, right? I think that would qualify, even if they don't have that, that a romantic connection that a lot of like Westerners. Yeah, absolutely. It, it could. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's correct. And so that really, you know, cause you do say that the, what was it? The spouses have to be like dedicated for the good of each other, you know, not just mm. children and raising the children, but also the mutual good of each other. Um, which is big, you know, a big part of the marriage vows, you know, is that care. And 
I guess I just, we hear those so romantically and I think like the good that we're pursuing for each other is, is this romantic, I don't, yeah, DJ, you, you hate that word for good reason. Cause it's like, well, what do we mean by that? Um, there's lots of things that are meant by that too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but it, I guess, have you, have you come across in your profession people who are, have the potency for sexual intercourse and procreation and also have the desire to create a well-ordered household that is mutually supportive for husband and wife, but they're pretty, maybe like the emotional romantic vibes are kind of absent. I mean, yeah, I've certainly come across some cases that seem like that. Those are, I mean, they're difficult because it might be a very sympathetic story on the one hand, but if we're committed to truth-seeking and and we can't change the nature, we can't just you know snap our fingers to dissolve a marriage if we think it was truly valid, then I mean, we might have to give a negative decision to a situation like that. It could be it could be a situation where, in theory, they might be permitted to, you know, separate if it's intolerable, but they might not be able to remarry. Mm -hmm. I think some some experimentation marriages touch what you are talking yeah. about, David Frank. Not some. I mean, they differ in different yeah. ways, but some I think kind of are in that realm of what you want to ask about. <laughs> to move away from some of those questions and then consider the catechism of the Catholic Church very briefly. Could you unpack the term dis that's used in certain Catholic writings, including the catechism, if I'm not mistaken, around yeah. same-sex sexual attraction or same-sex attraction? And I ask in part because this often comes up in conversations. I've seen former side B Catholics or not side A they're just like, oh, I hate that language. Like that language yep. is terrible, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but at the same time, me as a Protestant like reader of Catholic works, I've, I've appreciated the language. It's actually been helpful for me to kind of put certain pieces together. And, hmm. I, think, and, I, think, and I think a lot of words can be abusive or helpful depending on how they're used, depending on the context. But I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Like, what does that mean when you when it's talked about in some of these Catholic documents? Sure. So, I mean, it, it, I mean, even if we're moving on, it, it does still connect back immediately to the things we've talked about. With <laughs> it's that language of disorder is bound up with the idea of purposes given by nature, given by God, <laughs> and when we act in accord with those purposes, our behavior is ordered in accord with nature. And, and when we reject or break those purposes, it's considered disordered. And, and I mean, in a, a very, hopefully non-controversial example would be like deliberately killing an, an innocent person. This is a, a simple example of a disordered action. And it's fundamentally making a moral claim about it's a moral disorder in the action and in the person who desires to commit that action. I, in that example, why like why is that a disorder? Just be, to be very, you know, or what is the proper order that should be expected that is now getting messed up? 
and disordered. Yeah. So, I mean, if a, I mean, the, the proper order with a, you know, if a, you have an innocent life, the proper order is to protect and respect and, and contribute to its flourishing. And so if uh-huh. you're, yeah, deliberately harming an innocent person is considered morally disordered. Hmm. I think <laughs> if that's not too oversimplified, but, but then you take the same, the same kind of language and it, it applies to sin in general. Like every sinful action is a disordered action. The desire to commit a sin is a disordered desire. That language, it's it's a philosophical or moral kind of claim that it applies very broadly. I would love if we unpack this a bit. And I want to specifically talk about how you, you seem to be making very tight line between um, philosophical and moral disorder. But I've also seen your writings in other places which differentiate this deeply from psychological disorder. And mm. for me, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But for me, yeah, I, I, I don't quite understand how they're so different because we see humans who we might call like deviants, who like sociopaths or, psych- or psychopaths, maybe they have an intense desire to kill. Some of them never do. Some of them do. We usually call that We'd call that a moral and philosophical disorder. We'd also call it psychological disorder, I think, typically mm-hmm. at the same time. I don't know. Why does, why, why is this different? Like, or, yeah, what, what do you think on that? Yeah, I think, it, I think that the, it's, how do I say this? There, the two lines of language on disorder, I think, are speaking to, when you talk about moral or philosophical, it's on the more intellectual or I guess, you know, intellectual or moral analysis. And if you're talking about psychological or, or frankly, even biological or natural, you're talking something, even though it's philosophically linked, it's, it's regarding something more concrete in, in nature. So, so, I mean, uh, uh, if you have a an, a physical illness, you could philosophically speak of that in some way as a, a type of disorder. But it's it's on the natural side of things. It's not a choice you're making. It's not a moral act to to get sick to contract an illness voluntarily, involuntarily. So, and and I think that the psychological is going to fall more on that side of it's an involuntary thing that has. Yeah, the person is perhaps experiencing or suffering from, or they haven't chosen and it's not a moral act. So the two things are divided, maybe I guess in terms of what's voluntary and what's involuntary or what's what's chosen and what's natural, so to speak. Ooh, that can get complicated, I think. That yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I feel, TJ, that your question brings up when homosexuality used to be in the DSM psychiatrist handbook of, you know, was having homosexual attraction a psychological disorder, right? And, and you know, if we're talking about it in the Catholic catechism, it's teaching tool that when same-sex sexual desire, homosexual desire is disordered are those radically two different things that's kind of your question right tj yes and i asked that in part because i still see the human being is united and i yeah, don't well, always i know i know you do as well i know catholics do as well 
And I don't understand quite how we, it seems like abstraction versus the actual lives of the human person. And I don't understand how we talk about it easily, especially part of this is on our podcast, we've been using, even in our conversations, we've been using metaphors of disability for queerness. Like that's kind of moved up in importance among us. And that obviously starts touching ideas of disorder at the same time. So, yeah, I, this is, I'm just trying to understand why, yeah, why, and it, for, in some ways it seems like you don't, it doesn't want to be said because it hits people the wrong way. I think they they feel it. Probably a large part of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess what I'm thinking is that, I mean, like, as you said, like there is a unity of the person. These things aren't. You can't absolutely perhaps separate them out entirely. There's going to be impact or overlap between them. But I think it has more to do with the the notion of disorder in our in our imagination or in our understanding representing something more dramatic or outside. It's outside the range of what's normal. You know, we might like philosophically say like getting sick every with flu every year. It's a sort of disorder, but it's within the bounds of what's normal. It's not going to end up in the DSM. It, it's not. It's not. So it, yeah, there's this this notion of what's normal to experience or what's not normal to experience. What's causing suffering or causing unhealthy behavior? What needs treatment or what is maybe on philosophically some level not ideal, but is is normal, so to speak, in a fallen world. Mm. That, that kind of hits, I'm a social scientist, that kind of hits like the center of like, cultural politics, how cultures define themselves, like what's deviant, yep. what's not. How do yep. we, by saying this is deviant, these people in the middle, like we're the, we're good. Like those are the deviants out there, but also how we talk about them. So yeah, I, I appreciate your thoughts so much. I was wondering, could you, go ahead, David Frank, you have a question? Then Sorry. Maybe just a comment. I'm just thinking about these layers of, you know, the social perception of, I don't know if you mentioned, you know, lying as a sin that is philosophically, we'd say that's disordered. You know, yep. language is meant to be ordered towards truth telling. Relationships are meant to be ordered towards truth and harmony. And so lying is disordered, cuts against that. But someone who lies, you know, like how regularly does it have to get? How psychologically bent does someone have to be on lying before we're like, oh, there is there. I feel like there's a word for that in the DSM. You know, uh, yeah, it the, could be like compulsive lying or, or some yeah, kind of, a, a, might consider some type that of compulsive lying disorder. disorder. Yeah. I, and, and I do think there's a continuum there that even I think sometimes we'll see in, in like marriage cases I work on where there's a something of a blurry continuum between a full blown disorder on the one hand, that's something maybe more involuntary or out. It's such, it's taken on a life of its own that it's almost too difficult to control versus a simple sinful action. And then in between you have like vice, which is a habit, but it might be a habit that's not Mm. so extreme that you can't control it. You could step away from it with just a fair amount of effort. You, You have a bit of a continuum between sin, habit, vice, and something that's more compulsive or extreme or randomly the this spectrum of disorder. Randomly, this reminds me of, I once worked, I worked for Catholic charities for a time when I was in school. And it's a, a Catholic 
organization in the U.S. and maybe outside that I think is under the bishops, but it's meant to kind of support the people impoverished, support people in need. And I learned that they have houses for people who can't seem to stop drinking. And they just, and that, and that pe it's seen as a harm reduction, like, like motion as an ethical thing to send these people to these houses where they, they can still drink, but they drink less in the house. They don't drinking alcohol, drinking alcohol. Sorry. Yes. Drinking alcohol. Okay. Sorry if that wasn't clear. Drinking alcohol, <laughs> but I, there's just, I know a lot of strange disorders of people who can't stop eating. Yeah. Papers, I just saw another so one, like really people who can't stop eating. I mean, there's a lot of ways that human development um, goes wrong. And they kind of touch, they touch ethical and virtue reflections and quite understand the connection. And that's why I'm, hmm. I keep asking about this disordered thing. So you're saying that it's the opposite of a sober house? It's, a it's an opposite. They can, <laughs> they can drink and they can stay in the house. They don't pay anything. And sometimes that's going to be the house for the rest of their life, however long they live, right? Because hmm. it's decided they don't have the capacity just in normal terms of stopping drinking alcohol for in excess, basically. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know if you want to go into this, but what other, what are other things that are considered disordered in the catechism? Yeah. So there's a whole, I mean, you can compile the list or text search it to pull them all out. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, disorder is the term applied to, I think, like we said, lying, uh, fornication, blasphemy, perjury, murder, adultery, masturbation, rape, homosexual acts, sexual acts specifically contraception they're all they're all considered disordered or sinful and i think that i mean that connects back to this notion of moral primarily a moral disorder so mm -hmm. you have another citation that is relevant at least for the catholic catechism here is 2351 that says sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. Hmm. So when you have a, a clear claim like that, then you can apply language of disorder and again, moral disorder to all of these actions that sever, sever those things. And when we speak of intrinsic disorder, it's, it's linking back to this theological notion of intrinsically evil. Like there's no circumstance that could justify it. Intrinsic refers to the nature of the act and whether or not whether or not it could be justified under some circumstances. And if there's such an action, such as maybe murder to make it clear, but if there's such an action that can never be justified under any circumstances, then it's intrinsically evil and that desire to do such a thing is intrinsically disordered. And so that gets applied to all of these different different things. Do you think that the church or the editors of the catechism would ever change this language of intrinsically disordered? Is it likely? I don't know about likely. I think it's, I mean, it's a kind of a ongoing discussion, I think right now in some ways. So I think it's entirely possible. I think if it happened, it would cause all, again, a lot of confusion and it would need to be done in such a way that it's being very clear about if it's why it's maybe it's a pastoral change in language and why it's being done, what it does mean and what it doesn't mean, it would involve, I think, a lot of explanation that would be difficult to convey quickly. <laughs> but whether or not it happens, yeah, I think it's possible. I think it's, I, 
I don't know about probable, but it, yeah, I could. In an ideal world, I, I might be inclined to support such a thing, but it would require it would have to be like a change that's being done to the catechism with an entire small encyclical attached explaining why the traditional teaching or why the traditional language existed, why it's still true, why it's being changed for pastoral reasons. It would be it would be a lot. And to be clear, the um, intrinsically disordered language emerged relatively recently. Is that right? That particular English phrase. I don't think that I don't think that particular phrase is very new. I think that section of the catechism that I mean, the catechism actually as a as the form we have it now is very new. I mean, that was just promulgated by John Paul II. I mean, within living memory for most of us. I think prior to that, you had a lot of individual catechisms or, or maybe some that were updated from time to time. So updates to the catechism in that sense aren't unusual. That specific paragraph, I guess you could say, is new and, and could be perhaps writ rewritten or clarified in ways that minimize the confusion if people are really struggling with it. So what are the options in the conversation around this language then? One is obviously keep it. Um, what other options are there kind of available? I mean, I think you could, you could, you could adopt a phrase like morally disordered instead of intrinsically disordered. That might convey more of a notion of sin and less of the people getting too off track about intrinsic disorder, meaning like a, like a psychological DSM disorder. I think you could push more in the direction of speaking of moral disorder or, or even just avoid disorder entirely refer to it as sinful, just full stop sinful without using that philosophical language and leave that more to the philosophers to unpack. Because mm, we like catechism, are these Q and A's that uh, like, I know sometimes we use catechisms for children at our church, but we also use them in adult education. What's the context that this catechism is getting used? The catechism we have now, I think it's considered like a universal catechism. I believe it was originally intended to help create or local catechisms, but I think with maybe the explosion of the internet and things, it's kind of stood the test of time and become its own thing instead of just becoming a a reference text for the building of smaller catechisms. Mm -hmm. Something else in the catechism that I wanted to ask you about. I know, I don't know the section, but I know that there's a section of the catechism that says every sign of unjust discrimination regarding homosexual persons should be avoided. Would you comment on this? Is this like, does this help the Catholic Church be more, more kind, loving to queer people? Yeah, I think... I think on some level it certainly does. I, I think it raises the bar, especially in terms of referring to every sign of unjust discrimination. You put the emphasis on even signs of discrimination, and that signals that the appearance of injustice should be avoided. At the same time, you have the phrase unjust discrimination, which it, it's kind of assuming the fact that it is unjust, which kicks off a whole debate about what is just discrimination or unjust discrimination. Mm -hmm. When is it justified? When is it not? 
And that, so that part can spiral out real quick with viewpoints about what's just or unjust. But because like, obviously I think it's, everyone would say unjust discrimination is bad. That's not really the thing we need mm-hmm. to debate about avoiding unjust discrimination. We need to debate about when it's just or when it's unjust. In any case, if it, so in the one hand, it, it doesn't do too much because it's a, it's saying something that I think everyone would agree with. But when it puts an emphasis on avoiding signs of unjust discrimination, that pushes us, I think, toward a more charitable framework where if you have to avoid the appearance, then you have to maybe go above and beyond to make sure you're not even appearing to do something unjust. And that's a higher standard. It also ties back in an interesting way to, there's a broad legal principle, I think it's certainly in canon law, but also other places that justice not only has to be done, but must be seen to be done. And this is the opposite of injustice not only shouldn't be done, but shouldn't even be seen to be done because even the appearance of injustice causes scandal to people Mm. who see it. So, so I think if it pushes us in a more charitable direction, it's because of that element. My brain was going along lines of the perception (laughs) of justice and how difficult that is um, and how mm-hmm. I mean yeah just contested and difficult that has been in Minneapolis regarding George Floyd in very small situations where often the person who's you know in a lot of these kind of judicial or where authorities have to step in someone doesn't feel like things went the right way and it's hard to ever get to a point where every person feels like justice has been dealt. Um, But I don't actually have a question around that. Just a general lamenting about the difficulty of justice. Do you know when this was written? You might have said earlier, but I'm just curious when it has says homosexual persons, because older translations of the Bible have used homosexual, homosexuals, maybe homosexual persons to indicate people who are practicing homosexual sex. But more recently, we understand that the language to be people who have a homosexual orientation, who experience same-sex sexual attraction. Do you know where, what time period this is from, or which, where it's language? I do know. I do know that it's published in 1992. But from everything I've read and studied, I think that of those two things you were saying, the first one, where the phrase homosexual persons refers to people who are engaging in that sexual activity. I think that's what the catechism is almost absolutely referring to it. It does not have that broader notion of orientation yet. It has, it has some seeds of it perhaps in terms of referring to people who have this inclination, but it's even that gets messy where the inclination, I think, refers more properly to a behavioral inclination, not a emotional or affective inclination. But I mean, that is a, it's on the cusp of the development, I think, in the cultural distinction between orientation and behavior. And I think the catechism rides an uncomfortable line trying to say two things that aren't always mm. separate or clearly separated. Yeah, it's really interesting because I forget which pope gave a blessing of the courage ministry, a Catholic ministry, and it was like towards 
you know, it's work. I think it used the phrase homosexual persons. And yeah, it's just like, oh, is this helping? If you're really narrow on behavior, it would be like this ministry is only helping people who have actually had homosexual sex. Uh, and if it's more broad, it could be this ministry is for anybody who is trying to be faithful with homosexual sexual attraction. Yeah, so it, it's it's something that uh, I think you used the word equivocation earlier before. It's not radically different. Well, it can be. So it's just it's always a little dicey of what people yeah. what people mean. I think it becomes even dicier when they're looking towards authoritative documents. Like that's the thing that has the complexity, because that's what they they view as a standard, you know. And it's kind of like the Presbyterian that letter that they sent. I forgot what it's called, but I think you know. Anyways, yeah. Once our study report, yeah, our study report. When something gets I've seen as standard, then it becomes complicated in these conversations. So, okay, I want to move on to something that I care about a lot. Over the past several years, I've always been interested in seeing some of the discussions in the Catholic Church around, like, um, chaste same-sex unions, adelphopoiesis, covenant brotherhood, celibate partnerships. Would you be willing to comment on this topic a bit from your experience being Catholic and being a canon lawyer? Yeah, so especially with, like, the question of celibate partnerships, I think there's not been much recent development on those questions. You can pull out historical maybe examples, but recently there hasn't been too much development yet. But I do think it's, I, I suspect it's coming and we'll have to see how it unfolds. But I mean, so you've got recent popes such as I think John Paul II and Benedict both, they don't use the term celibate partnership, but they, they do suggest that equivalent of being an option for people who are divorced and cannot canonically remarry. So if divorced men and women have, or divorced man and divorced woman have come together and been together for a long time, if they're raising children, they can't perhaps canonically remarry if we don't believe there's proof of the nullity of their first marriages. But there is this option offered where they could live together, essentially in chastity, as the phrase is, as brother and sister. I think just implying lack of sexual activity and that can open a pathway toward the sacraments or toward resuming the sacraments because their behavior is being put back in, in line with the, the moral requirements. So there's that on the one hand, which I think will continue to develop with regard to divorced and remarried persons. There's also a fascinating 1973 document from the U.S. Catholic bishops that advanced really strong arguments for the moral permissibility of chaste same-sex partnerships. And and I can quote the specific paragraph that probably spoke the loudest to me, but it says, quote, a homosexual can have an abiding relationship with another homosexual without genital sexual expression. Indeed, the deeper need of any human is for friendship rather than genital sexual expression. On the mm -hmm. surface, this may seem like placing the homosexual in approximate occasion of sin, but other elements in this plan of life, such as spiritual direction, can temper the danger, which is justified, considering his need for deep human relationships and the good that will come from them in the future. So there's it's a so good. There's a Protestants talking yeah. about the same. Yeah, and it was years and ago. And that's 1973. Yeah, yeah. 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 we wow. if we could, yeah get more like that please and then 
But then this is coexisting with more complexity where you have the, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome recently issuing a statement that condemns the blessing of same-sex unions. But when you read the explanation, what it's saying is you can't bless sexually active same-sex unions. And so it's premised on that prohibition is premised on the relationship being sexually active, which logically, if you're reading it carefully, leaves room for the possibility of blessing chaste same-sex unions. And that that whole discussion is still ongoing. Like even very recently, Pope Francis has made statements that maybe same-sex unions could be blessed on a case-by-case basis. In my reading of it is going to be that chastity is required. That's obviously compatible with the, the, the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith just said. People aren't, not everyone's in agreement that that's what he meant or that that's where we're going. I suspect it's likely, um, but it is a, a controversial discussion in terms of celibate partnerships, civil unions, how much can the church back those things without giving the appearance of abandoning its authentic teaching on what marriage is or on the morality of sexual activity. How important do you think it is for the church to be able to bless these? Or maybe like, what does that mean? Is that just a, is that kind of like a Southern, you know, bless your soul? You know, is that a, just like we give a thumbs up to it or is this actually a ceremonial thing that has more implications than maybe maybe sacramental? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so it wouldn't be, it certainly wouldn't be a sacrament in the way that marriage is a sacrament, but it would be a, a blessing when it, when a blessing is done, it's considered a sacramental, like a, you know, like a, like holy water is a sacramental or a rosary is a sacramental. Like a blessing would fall into that category of being a sacramental. What form it would take is, I mean, all up in the air being actively debated. I mean, as we speak, I mean, in my mind, if, if something like that is going to take place, it would have to be a real, it, there would have to be a, a, it would have to be clearly structured to be a blessing, encouraging these people in their pursuit of chastity. Something like that it would have to be mm. not a unambiguous blessing of this relationship. And we turn a blind eye to what you may or may not be doing at home. It would have to be a, it would have to be something more explicitly compatible with what the church is encouraging them to aim at. But then at the same time, you have, I think, others who are, another approach entirely is people who will suggest that, I mean, you can bless any individual person who wants to wants to pursue Christian living. You don't have to bless the union, you can just bless the individuals. And that's effectively the same thing, but you know, to them or to others, it might it might not feel or look or have the same value, and so there's all there's a separate debate about the value of blessing the relationship, and then what conditions are required for that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned like the rosaries. I think when I was at the De Montreville Jesuit Retreat Center, there was a time where people could bring up prayer ropes, uh, maybe even I don't know if they had little crucifixes, you know images of Jesus' crucifixion that could be blessed and you said that's that's a sacramental it's kind of a here's a an object that is being blessed and um, spiritually encouraged for your spiritual edification is that accurate yeah i think that's that's accurate okay and so it's just similarly blessing a a union a, a friendship a a brotherhood it needs to be directed towards 
consistent spiritual good ends. And so yeah. would it make sense to, yeah, like bless a, <laughs> I mean, some other type of, whether it's a, an object or a, a relationship that is disordered. Yeah. If I, yeah, it's actually, if it's, if it's not compatible with the Christian faith, I don't think you can bless it. Okay. And that would be, you know, for, that would be for the Catholic church understood in a very specific way. Others might have to explore or debate what, what it means to be compatible with the Christian faith. If we don't all agree exactly what that means. If, if things were, how important it would it be? Like, I'm just wondering when these blessings are being given, like, could your house say, Hey, could we, like, we're trying to form an intentional rhythm of prayer in our community and a place of hospitality. Can you come bless the work that we're doing and, and the, the unity that we have as housemates. Is that in the same category or am I often like left field? It's definitely, I think on the same continuum. I, I think things like that can be done and are done. I think where we run into difficulty with same sex unions or with divorced and remarried couples is that it's often so close to ambiguity about if it's a sexual relationship or not, if, if it's just a household work, you don't typically have that question arising. Hey, I want to ask another question that may be controversial. I'll provide you some, a bit, a bit of this rationale. When I started engaging in the side B community, I was a little bit surprised to see that some side B people really seemed to put a lot of their affection, I guess, towards Father James Martin, a Catholic priest who engages in a lot of queer conversations and topics. Um, I think most people who are in the conversation around sexuality and faith in the U.S. probably know of him and they kind of know of his work. But I want to ask, yeah, what do you, what do you think about him? Yeah, what has your been, can, maybe you have, have, have had evolving thoughts, but what do you think about him? Yeah, so my, I don't have a very clear opinion about him. There's many things I've seen that I've liked and there's a lot of questions I've seen that I don't have confident answers to. So, I mean, to make a little bit of a, a joke compared to, we've talked about things being ordered. I think his work is generally ordered toward praiseworthy purposes. He's aiming at a lot of things that I would agree with or that are compatible with the Catholic faith and with greater dignity and respect for LGBT persons. I think at the same time, I'm skeptical of his deeper commitment or lack of perhaps commitment to the stability of Catholic doctrine on sexual ethics. I think there were, I was impressed at one point when I think he went on record saying he affirms and agrees with the church's teaching, but when he kind of leaves unclear as whether he agrees that that teaching can or can't be changed. And that's going to mm. have a huge impact on what we're aiming at or working toward. If sure. so, so it's just his, it's, it's not anything he says that leaves me with the concern so much as his silence mm. and things he doesn't say. Mm -hmm. And that applies to a lot of people who are, you know, having this debate or this discussion. Often I think they're pushing for good things, but if they're not if they're not equally committed to the church's teaching remaining what it is, then that's dragging us back to having a debate about can it be changed, can it not be changed, or how much 
and and we're not making progress on paths forward that are compatible with the church's teaching, which is what I'm much more interested in. Mm -hmm. The the question around blessing of same-sex chaste unions is not a matter of changing any doctrine. Is, is it kind of like changing a procedure or adding a procedure or adding a Yeah, I guess something like that. You would have to, I mean, typically you'd want to have a, a, a some kind of text approved for for the blessing. I mean, you could probably just do, you could ask a priest, you could probably just do a generic blessing that doesn't have a whole small ritual behind it. But a lot of blessings, like there's there's liturgical or quasi-liturgical texts drafted for the blessing of those things. What do you think is the vision for queer, LGBT, gay, homosexual, same-sex attracted persons in the church? What would be the shape of a good society for said said persons? And what would life look like that would allow them to flourish? Yeah, so I think, I mean, maybe preliminary is you want to go back to that question of unjust discrimination. We want to work toward eradicating that wherever it exists. But beyond that, in order to flourish, I think my answer is that you want to encourage a society that offers a diversity of options. And and so essentially you would look at, you know, what's what's morally possible, what's morally licit. All of those things should be on the table for discernment. So, I mean, religious life, holy orders for people who are truly committed to and capable of maintaining chastity, maybe marriage to someone of, you know, the opposite sex if if they like a mixed orientation marriage if they genuinely feel called to it or pursuing chastity as a single person either as a uh, on their own or in a community life of some sort even celibate partnerships kind of being on that spectrum of the smallest possible community life. I think all of those options should be on the table, should be encouraged to flourish in ways that are compatible with the church's vision for human sexuality. And I think crucially, it's the messaging or the, the important thing to convey is that those are all the same options that are morally licit or available to straight people for discernment. And they can, again, they can look at religious life, holy orders, marriage to someone of the opposite sex, to chastity and single life. All of those are options they can discern and pursue. And I think if we encourage the development of that framework and the equality of vocational options available to persons and the requirement, the equality of requirements for those vocations where it's not a question of maybe your orientation, it's a question of your commitment to living chastity or to live marriage as the church understands it, then then we are that's the kind of society I think we are going to want to aim toward cultivating. Hmm. Thank you. David do you have any other questions? I have no further questions. I just am thankful for the straight answers you give and the strong assumption that, you know, chastity is achievable uh, generally like it it's actually a livable solution there's so much of this that is very countercultural, and even as far as i'm just a little bit taken aback by the like husband and wives who live together as brother and sister that's just so strange but i'm yeah just interested in continuing to think about how we can holistically order our lives in these kinds of coherent ways that actually make maybe 
not immediate sense to the watching world, but have this deep harmony with God's design. So that's a long way of saying thank you for stirring my thoughts. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate so much that you came on. Thank you for having me. Hey, listeners, I want to let you know about the Communion and Shalom Patreon. Joining the Patreon community not only supports this podcast, but gives you the opportunity to listen to bonus content, give input on future episodes, and submit questions for a patron-only Q&A. We're so thankful for the support and encouragement from so many listeners, and we hope that this podcast continues to be meaningful to you. 